Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCourse subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. 
In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in the fed, fun, and functional categories. And I'm a nervous, excited, hot mess express of an SLP because today is First Bite's 100th episode. And it's extra special because, well, I'm sort of burying my soul today. Okay. So last week in Erin's debut Therapy Tip Thursday for First Bite, she shared that for the last year of my life, I... Well, in truth, it was a collective we with help from my warrior women, Erin, Leslie, Annalisa, Mernie Mern, Sydney, aka the squid, Steph, Darla, my mother-in-law, Erin's amazing sweet sister, Dove, and several amazing colleagues that y'all have heard me interview here. Well, all these folks are a part of a tribe of women that have helped me chase down a dream that at their encouragement. I spoke into the universe. It was the dream of authoring a book called Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. So here it is. I had planned to finish the book by March 31st. And y'all, I missed my self-imposed deadline because, well, there was sort of a pandemic and life happened. And as hard as it was to admit that I missed my own deadline, it turns out that I'm thrilled that I did because one chapter that I had hit a roadblock on, well, I finally broke through it last Thursday because writer's block is like a legit thing (laughs) that it sucks. And I'm excited to share that I have basically cleaned off the first two weeks in June to finish this up. And once, um, once I have that, um, some of the lovely ladies, aka um, Miss Erin, <laughs> they're going to help finish the editing because comma slicing is really hard and I'm super verbose and I need to be like narrowed in, <laughs> laser focused. And then once all that's done, um, it'll be out on Amazon. And My anxiety is rising because, y'all, I am really putting myself out there. I mean, once it's out, I can't take it back. And fear has crippled me for so many months. It has made me stall. It has made me wait. It has made me duck my head and hide. But yet these women and my pack Dawson, that Mr. Dawson of mine, 
and all my villas in Virginia have encouraged and cheered, and it's this close. And I still can't believe. So, today's episode is a celebration of a podcast and a book. And both of these are dreams that came to fruition because of the one and only Erin Forward and her fabulous, amazing self and friendship and sisterhood. So, woman, you know it, but seriously, Pat Dawson loves you, and I am so grateful that you came into our lives and that you hold me accountable when I say we're going to do it, and then I turn into a yellow-bellied chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Y'all, seriously, I procrastinated for days on even recording tonight because I was um, that nervous and afraid, and Aaron was like, woman, we're doing it, so (laughs) ta-da! But... um, I'm gonna be crying. I know, me too. <laughs> ah, so we did it. A hundred episodes and um, three quarters of a book later, we did it. <laughs> Hi. I'd say more than three quarters. We're just polishing. Uh, yeah, but polishing includes a reference page, and that's awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's. Um, let's frame this. Um, so today, um, let's, I, I, I just have to say that I kind of owe, um, Anna Grace the, um, the title because when she was my student, I told her, she was like, well, how do you know, how do you know where to send these people? Like, how come it's not just a feeding aversion? And, you know, we're sitting there in the car. We're probably at Lowe's, bless it. Because whenever I have a patient cancel, I somehow find my way to Lowe's to buy more plants. Um, Christian's very, very, a very patient husband. Um, and I was like, you just have to chase that. And I may or may not have said a four letter word. I was like, you just have to chase that all the way down. Um, that got changed over to chasing the swallow because you can't say chase that and then put it on a book cover. (laughs) So, I mean, you could, but it would probably not be copacetic and popular. Yeah. Um, Different audience. Different audience. Well, probably the same audience, but not nearly as nerdy. Maybe Fair. we'll do that for the second edition. Unedited <laughs> version. But um, so yeah. But that's kind of how this all came. Because where do you begin? Mm-hmm. And that's hard to explain. So that's all I have to say on that because I'm really not good at um, talking about something I've done. So I'm going to awkwardly be quiet and hand the microphone to you, Erin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we've talked so much about about what you want people to know, what we want people to know, not saying we know half of or a quarter of what we should know, but the hard part about what we do is that we really, really need the help of other professionals and other specialties because it. what I love about feeding therapy is you kind of get to be detective because these issues that kids are having all can present in the way that they communicate in the way that they eat specifically the way that they eat is what we're talking about today but like as speech pathologists like that's there are so many systems and muscles and 
organs that all work together to culminate in feeding, but we're seeing that end product. So how do we go from that end product and work on that when there's so many pieces prior to what we're seeing? And so I think what you've done with this book is present the information of all of these specialties that we need to know about in a way that's palatable, in a way that you've, because I'll brag on you for like, I could brag on you for the whole episode, but like, I'll keep it short just to keep you comfortable. Um, Thank you because I'm like literally squirming. <laughs> you've done so much research and seen so many patients that that people who especially are starting out have never seen. And so you've done all this work of researching and, you know, waiting in the parking lot of a daycare for the allergist to talk to him about, you know, <laughs> to ask him questions. And Thank you, Greg. And reach out to pediatricians and you've done the work and you've put it into a book form that now is manageable for someone, that they can have the information to know what symptoms to look for, to know, and it it can show us how to build the bridge as we always talk about. Um, I, I mean, I can say I haven't seen anything like this before. And I think it's very hard and overwhelming and you realize that like you can't do your job on your own. And for some people that can be incredibly frustrating, but it's, I think it's amazing that we get to play detective and that involves sending kids to a lot of other specialties, but that's really cool. And sometimes if you've watched any detective movies, you're going to be wrong a lot of the time, but you still have to but try. That's cool too. Yes. That's cool too. And that, and you, you learn by thing, you learn just as much from a no as you do from a yes. Yep. So don't yep. be afraid. But I, I just, to give everyone like a, a generalized idea of what you're looking at with this book, it, it, and it, it and you you put your stories in there that's what makes you you that's people get to see these you know cases moments. that you've had in these moments and how those referrals change those kids stars as you would say so it yeah. we're going to talk so, today about we're going to go a little bit into some specifics of that but i mean Y'all, it's very cool. Like, I'll just brag on it because, you know, I'm, I can, but. Can you help me? <laughs> so, that, um, so every chapter starts with a moment in time with the kid and the signs and symptoms that I saw during that eval, during that one moment that made me think, hey, we need to see this specialist. And then we segue over and that's, that's the, um, the truth, the moment of truth, so to speak. And then we segue over to the science. What's the specialists do? What kind of tests do they run? And, and, and we go into a ridiculous amount of details what signs and symptoms would get me there. And then we build the bridge back to our case and wrap it up with hope. And I put my flaws out there when I've been wrong, when I've been inadequate, 
um, every once in a while when we hit it out of the park because we get the right team. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through and talk a little bit about um, three different specialists and well, I guess technically four, um, three, four different specialists and um, how our collaboration with them is critical. So without further ado, because I'm like a hair's breadth away from like melting into a puddle and <laughs> going and living under a friggin' rock, um, which is not a bad idea because we've been been watching the crudes lately. And, you know, sometimes the daddy caveman's right. You need to just be under a rock. <laughs> so like... You know, it's fine. Oh my God, my heart rate is like literally <laughs> elevated from, from 81 to 92, and we're 10 minutes in. We're fine. It's fine. It's okay. Fine. So, Aaron, let's let's start with GI. Well, let's start with putting my reading glasses on so I can read what the heck is on my paper. Um, <laughs> let's start with GI. Yes. And you have your copy of the book on your desktop, <laughs> and I got mine. Um, the beautiful thing is all the information's right there. Uh, so let's go with their schooling. You want, you want me to be the nerdy one and go through the schooling? Yeah, you start. Page. Okay. Okay. So, um, science behind a pediatric GI. Okay. And this is interesting to me because I want to know why one, why is there so few GI docs that I really feel like are in the know? Okay. And that's been super frustrating. And what do they know that's more than me? And how long have they been in school? And if I've been in school a little bit longer, like, could I have been a GI doctor? Yes, but no, there's blood. And I don't want to touch other people's poop. So, yeah, it's a lot of poop. Yeah, it's a lot of poop. Okay. So um, uh, a pediatric GI, um, gastrointestinal, uh, they are typically in school. And you can check all of this out. There's this fantastic website. And I will pull it. Um, uh, the American Board of Pediatrics has specifics on pediatric gastroenterology. The American Board of Pediatrics, actually, when you get on their website, it breaks down the different specialties and subspecialties of pediatricians. And I thought this was pretty cool. So uh, they've been in school for four years of med school. They got three years of residency, followed by an additional three years of a full-time broad-based fellowship training in pediatric GI by an accredited program, okay? And then they have to apply to be um, recognized as a subspecialty by the American Board of Pediatrics, okay? So they're in school for a lot longer than we are, okay? A lot now, longer. A lot longer. <laughs> so, um, but some of the diseases that they cover um there's there's a there's well good god almighty there's a ton but let's backtrack Erin, what signs and symptoms when you're doing your eval would tell you that you need to get a kid to a gi um so our kid had you know we find that she doesn't poop but like once a week um oh, but you're filling them full of miralax and milk of mag <laughs> totally fine uh-huh <laughs> Uh -huh. Um, a lot of times the part with GI too is a lot of times I'll, some of the lead to GI might come after a swallow study. Um, mm -hmm. like if I think there's something esophageal going on, you know, for example, if you're seeing like they start 
introduction to solids and that's when they kind of start to refuse? Um, is there something esophageal going on, but then sometimes you'll kind of go to the swallow study first dependent. Um, I think. And and folks by esophageal, you're looking at like motility or structural abnormalities, like a stricture, jackhammer, um, inability for the LES to open. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, especially if you have your preemies, you, if they um, show a lot of signs of reflux, like if they're overeating, if they are arching after they eat, if they have a lot of emesis after feeds, um, that's definitely when I would. Those are some of other symptoms. I know there's a ton. What other ones do you have? Um, the overeating is really counterintuitive on the surface. So like when you when you first see that like a kid's overeating and they're they're eating nonstop and they're like rapidly gaining weight, like you wouldn't think that that would be a problem, but that's typically a sign of GERD or they're trying to um, it's a nutritive sac that's bringing comfort, mm-hmm. right? So they keep eating, keep eating, keep eating, vomit, then keep eating, keep eating, keep eating, vomit, or they're just super irritable and fussy afterwards. Um, dream feeders. Yep. Dream feeders. Cause otherwise, so dream feeders refers to, uh, there's different stages of the sleep cycle. And so if you ask the mom, when's your little one nurse best? When does your little one, when can you get like the biggest volume in for the day? When they're like, Oh, when they're falling asleep or right before they fall asleep, or I wake them up at night. That's a classic one. Mm-hmm. I wake them up at night and they're not really awake, but I'll just feed them when they're sleeping. Okay. Well, we shouldn't like eat when we're sleeping. Mm -hmm. So those are all big red flags. Um, My kiddos that have uh, my little ones that have down syndrome that have the super extended stomach Mm -hmm. that could be firm to the touch. I have had several physicians tell me, Oh, well that's just normal. They just have downs. No, it is not okay for any child to look like they have a 41-year-old, like, belly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the frat bod that's, like, a thing. Yeah. The frat bod that's supposed to be, like, the new the beer cool belly. dad bod. Yeah. Beer belly. Like, that's not a thing. No. So, yeah, that's not okay. Um, a failure to thrive diagnosis. Uh, and I always ask about the type of the poo. Mm-hmm. So like if they go once a week, um, I'm, I'm, okay, this is not my words. This is how a mom described it. She was like, it's like a schmear. It's not a fart. It's not a poo. It's not a shirt. It's a schmear. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. if you've got a kid that's got a lot of schmears in their diapers, that to me is important because it means that they can't. Um, for some reason, especially if they're on like some of our synthetic formulas, they're not getting enough natural fiber sources to get it out. I talked to Melissa, one of the RDs with Real Food Blends, and she was telling me that uh, one of the classic signs of long-term use of uh, synthetic formulas that are like heavy in all the yeah. oats, mm-hmm. the fructose and stuff, she was like, if it's, she was like, unless it's an actual natural source she was like what happens is that they don't have enough natural fiber and that um 
um, how did she phrase it? The formula, it like hydrolyzes, hyd- Aaron, I'm going to butcher the word, make me talk right, hydrolyzes, hydro- hydrolyzes, that's the word, thank you, um, in their intestines, and uh, it, it does not allow them to form a solid stool. So that's why you get a lot of schmears. And that's not healthy. Y'all, if you can't get it out, you're not going to want to put it back in. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the, And all of these, I'm asking for all of this during the eval, right? Yeah. These are these, like... Always and, ask about the poop. Don't yes. ever forget to ask about the poop. Yes. And I go so far as to ask them to take pictures especially if they start saying, well, it's really greasy and they have a lot of floaters. Like that's not healthy. Mm -hmm. That's an issue with digestive enzymes and mucus production. And so, I mean, (laughs) y'all, there's somebody out there that has my cell phone number and bless it, my cell phone died. And when it saved, I didn't get the contact and this lovely person and I've been having numerous conversations about pictures of poop that they're sending. And I don't have the muchness to ask their name. So if that's you, I'm mortified and embarrassed, but like I'm thoroughly enjoying our conversation. Yep. Christian just calls the mystery poop message, and I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Okay, but like all of these are reasons that we would get to a GI. Okay, so what are they going to do when they go to GI? I'm like, that's the biggie. So we get them Mm -hmm. to GI, and then the next step really depends on the quality and caliber of the GI that you're going to meet as to what they're going to do. Because some GIs will, yeah, it's acid reflux, put you on Pilosec, and send you on your way. Or, no. or we're fine. It's just, they're just a, you know, a happy spitter. Happy and there are some happy spitters, but yeah, your kids Don't aren't you usually happy spitters. No, no, no. Neither are yours. <laughs> True. True. Yes. I love, I love that our island is increasing because there's a whole bunch of people that they're nodding going, dude, I've never seen a happy spitter, but like, yep. Okay. So they get there. So some of the first. Random that I don't want to forget in our journal club at work, we read this article and I think I would love to, I might like put it on the Facebook group or on the Instagram, whatever, but it talks about like our kids with moderate feeding difficulties that have feeding selectivity when they're younger, even just moderate to severe and like all the psychological impacts that it can have for them down the road when they're older, like the kids Mm -hmm. that get pushed out by pediatricians that just, oh, this is normal. They're just picky. But there was a huge percentage of those kids that had anxiety and other psychological damage, either in combination or kind of as a result of these feeding difficulties, um, very random, but I think it's good information for our physicians, speaking of interprofessional practice, to have to understand the um, long-term damage it can have. Sorry. Yes. Go ahead. No, we'll put that's that perfect. Up. Okay. Yes. And okay. Also, this is why Aaron and I are huge fans and advocates for feeding matters. Okay. There's a couple of different... Um, 
feeding groups, professional groups out there that you can join. Uh, but Feeding Matters is the first one that's family driven. It's the first one that um, places a specific emphasis on family and caregivers being part of that evidence-based triangle team. And I love that. Also, the greats in our fields, mm-hmm. and by fields, please, I hope you could hear the S on the end of that. We have um, psychologists, GIs, one of the lead GIs at Boston Children's is on there. I mean, these are people that serve on the board that are decision making and they've written policies and updated the uh, pediatric feeding disorder ICD-10 or ICD code that they're trying to get adopted. And they've put all of these recommendations in and are in the process of drafting. Well, they're trying to standardize the form. It's a form that will be added into the developmental screener checklist. And that's huge so that mm-hmm. every child, when they go to the pediatrician's office, and if, you've, if you're if you a mom, especially of a, of a little one, you go for the, you know, two-day checkup, the two-week checkup. Well, I don't know. I had preemies. So, like, we basically mm-hmm. looked at the pediatrician's office, but, like, whatever, like, the normal protocol is, they go through and they make you fill out this giant form to check, one, your mental health, but two, your kid's development. And they're adding PFD screens in there. Because it is huge. It is. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. that's that's critical because GI is part of the development of all these factors. Okay. All right. So back to it. One of the first things that I have seen GI do uh, is either they review the images from the modifieds. And again, I don't know how many times Aaron and I've talked about this one. When you do a modified barium swallow study, it is supposed to go all the way down to the LES where the bolus enters the stomach. Is that done? Eh. It's a really hard sell. We had a lot of arguments with the radiologists at times about why it was important, what we were seeing. But it when we did, you know, there were times where I would see a kid that and again, it's a screen. So I'd look and it looked like their UES was tight or it looked like a CP bar from reflux. I wasn't Correct sure. Bar. Yes. Sorry. I wasn't sure, but you just write what you saw, not diagnosing anything. And then because there was a really great relationship with the GI at the feeding clinic, a lot of times we'd show GI and they would either look at it and say, Oh, maybe, and we'll go into this, but oh, I would like to do um, manometry or a pH probe or something like that. Or they'd say, oh, looks normal, not concerned. But they, it would also depend on the child's history. Like we had a patient that had esophageal atresia and some other um, comorbidities that made them more likely to have difficulties in their esophagus um, as opposed to a kid with different with a more basic um, PMH. Sorry, yeah. but that's, no. yeah. But that's, those are factors that they should be looking at and reviewing in the charts, mm-hmm. okay? Do they always, does this always happen? No. Do they always get access to the chart? No, because if they had one study done at a different facility or a different health system, they may not have it. Just like we don't get medical records when we work in the world of EI. Sometimes they are not even communicated within the same health system if it's at different locations. Mm-hmm. So often they'll go in, we're going to palpate, we're going to feel the body, see how things are, you know, are we firm, distended, soft? Can they listen with the stethoscope? Okay, but then we start going for diagnostic imagery. 
I've had a lot of folks go straight to abdominal x-rays because it tells us, um, it can kind of give us an outline of how much stool is currently in the intestines and the colon. Okay. I have one little guy on my caseload right now who has such severe emptying issues. He's getting pneumonia from it. His intestines are backing up so much that it's pushing his diaphragm up and it's inhibiting the full capacity of his lungs. So he starts getting shortness of breath and it, it looks like the hospital acquired pneumonia when you have the patient that's bed bound and can't get up to move and they bring in, what is it, the incentive spirometer to kind of like try to get their lungs moving right? Mm -hmm. Well, the more constipated the little one is, the less he wants to move. And it's literally backing up into his lungs so that when they did x-rays and looked at his intestines and looked at his lungs, it was like um, his oxygen levels were dropping into like the high 80s on room air because he could not breathe because he was literally full of poop. And the first indicator was the abdominal x-ray. And kid who's been hospitalized a couple of times with this but these are big bad and unpleasant ones okay so um so we have abdominal x-ray chest x-ray i'm just kind of going through a few mm -hmm. um um a ct scan i thought this was kind of cool because you wouldn't think a ct scan uh would help with um uh intestines but when they're doing a CT scan, I have a little guy who has Down syndrome who had such bad distension. They did a CT scan, and an abdominal CT scan, and they were specifically looking at shape and size of liver, pancreas, and gallbladder. And they used it to rule in and out some big, bad, ugly things. I don't need to know the big, bad, ugly things. I want to be grateful that the doctor rules them out. But that didn't come to my mind as like being like right. a common test, you know? Mm -hmm. um, also, yeah. an upper GI looks at the anatomy. An upper GI does not tell you if the child has reflux. You will also hear GIs tell you they didn't have reflux on their upper GI. You're not going to see it on the upper GI. Just to clarify, you need a pH probe. And even then, like you think about the emptying studies, like there's so many variables that are so hard to control for mm -hmm. that they're not just as like, think about these tests that these physicians run. Similarly, I mean, we have some other variables with a swallow study, but similarly, they have other variables when they run these tests as well. So just as an modified barium swallow study is a gold standard. It's not perfect. So mm -hmm. these are also moments in time. So just like keep that in mind. Like they're over, you know, we don't not knowing more about them can help them be less overwhelming, but to know that they're not perfect is important. Yeah. Um, and upper GI specifically is used to rule out like blockages and ulcers. Um, and a lower GI sits in for the intestines, colon, and rectum. Mm -hmm. So upper GI basically goes from um, 
all the way down to the stomach, but once it goes into the intestines, you're hitting a lower, a lower GI, because um, it's basically a barium enema, so it's only going to hit your large intestines, colon, and your rectum, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so upper GI catches it on the upside. Um, okay, some other lovely ones, stool studies. You guys, the research coming out of Arizona on the microbes that are healthy and should be in poo is fascinating stuff. And stool studies, although you try to convince a mom that they need to collect their tiny human's poo for three days and probably put it in the same container because there's one study in particular that requires all the poop to be put in the same container. Like they're not really going to be that. I mean, <laughs> I was there when the can got opened one time because I just happened to be there when the can poop. It was like, wow, that's, um, I am grateful that um, I'm not the person running the labs on those. But we need that because they use it to tell if there's abnormal bacteria and parasites, as well as to look at blood, fat, proteins, and sugars that come through the stools. Um, and and there's, there's a ton more. Um, uh, oh, another reason that um, I would send to a GI and we didn't hit it earlier and I should have is chronic complaints of lethargy and fatigue. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because that that's that has resulted in some stool study samples. So, yay, yes. Okay, so sorry, my GI. cat is clawing on my papa's chair and will not please. We're fine. We're fine. <laughs> Sorry, Chong and Junior upstairs. I was like, they have to be quiet for an hour <laughs> because they barked through the other one that I did today. Okay, so I think we've covered everything. All right, so what can a GI do when they're on your team? All right, look, now they're going to get the diagnosis of what's going on with this kid, either rule it in or rule it out. And then they assist in getting that kid to a point of baseline. We're either going to regulate the bowels, and a lot of times it's done through medication. We are going to have a surgical procedure. Say that kid um, has a stricture. They're the ones that are going to fix that. Say the kid has Hirschsprung's disease. They're the ones that are going to go in and remove the unenervated portion of the intestines. Um, say that child um, is having um, issues and requires rectal dilatation, um, dilation, dilatation. Uh, those that's actually a thing. And well, and our GIs are also very important with our kids on feeding tubes. Yes. They're very important. Wow. I completely forgot that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were talking about like our kids. We first, you know, are not as obvious kids, but I mean, the GI a lot of times is the one that you call when you have a swallow study where they aspirated everything or, mm -hmm. you know, um, there, there are a lot of times that decision maker as far as condensing feeds and if we're wanting to tube wean, like they're, or they're very, very, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and here's, I had a lovely call today from a delightful SLP named Abby. Abby, I apologize. Goose, well, it ended up being bear. Bear fell off the slide. I thought he broke his wrist, but thank the Lord oh, he didn't. Oh, gosh. Um, 
Yeah. Well, he ran up the slide with socks on. I mean, and you know, he's my kid. I mean, he's the picture of grace, right? But um, Abby asked a very poignant question and girl, I'm going to throw you under the bus for this because it, this is great. He was like, I'm just wrapping up my CF year. How do I talk to them? How do I reach these doctors? Mm-hmm. You pound on their doors with politeness. I was like, take their reports, talk to them. And I did not get to finish my last recommendation to her because, you know, we had a broken wrist, casual. So like, my last recommendation would have been take the reports, fat, have someone fax mm-hmm. them over, but then call and ask for the nurse. Yes. Because when you're not, if you get a hold of the physician, you need to have everything written down exactly the rhyme and reason why you're requesting a test and an assessment. But if you talk to the nurse, for the most part, the nurse is more willing to listen and have a conversation. And there's an old, um, there's an old adage that the man may be the head of the house, but the woman is the neck and they tell the man which way to turn. Uh, well, y'all, I got two sisters that are nurses and let me tell you what the nurses know. Mm-hmm. And so you need to like get in nurses. Well, so Abby, you and I, I mean, when I was in Columbia, I can't even tell you, I mean, you and I spent so much time talking, we different patients, but like both of us would call the special needs care coordinator all the time. And I feel like between mm-hmm. you and I, she was just like, are these <laughs> only two SLPs in Columbia? But also like I'll sh- shout out my supervisor, Bree, who is like just a ball of wonderful energy and like that girl I mean, she is an advocate for all of her patients and just, you know, emails and calls and sets up meetings. And you kind of have to be a little, you don't have to be aggressive. You just have to be assertive and give them no choice but to meet with you because once they, once they see how much you care and that you're, you're doing it because you, you care about their patients, they're very, they're open and once they see the knowledge base that you have, but not even that you're trying to learn and they want to learn. So I think, I mean, I admire her like tenacity because she's really, really grown relationships just because she has given them no choice, but she's kind and open and it, it comes from a very good place. And I think that they know that. So that's why they're so open to it. But that, but that, it's those moments in creating those opportunities, that's how you get um, resolution for the kids, right? Mm-hmm. How you actually chase that swallow down and get the etiology. Right. That's, and with the etiology in hand, you can get them to a point of healing and then you can go in and rock it and do amazing feeding therapy. Because you have shaping. value in what you're seeing and they need to know mm-hmm. why you're making that referral and- mm-hmm that that's so important because that can help them decide what tests they need to run. And Mm -hmm. it's hard at first. Like I remember having conversations with physicians that were terrifying, especially on my, during my CF. And there were a few moments where it, it, there was a lot of miscommunication, but once you build that relationship, they really respect you. And then you have that connection to then communicate with them in the future because they see where you're coming from like it might not be super smooth at first but like as long as you show respect and kindness and are open and you know don't think you know everything then they're gonna 
not everyone. I mean, you're going to meet some people that aren't super open. That's life, but you just have to brush those off. Nope. Yes. 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 Perfect. Okay. I have to be the timekeeper. We have three more professions in 20 minutes. <laughs> right. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Otolaryngology. All right, y'all. An ENT has four years of med school. Um, also check out the AMA because AMA is a great um, definition here. So otolaryngologist has four years of med school and then a highly competitive um, five-year-long residency. Okay. First year is a crash course in all things, general surgery, um, they kind of see neurosurgery, anesthesiology, ERs, plastic surgery, the whole nine yards. The last four years of residency are devoted specifically to head and neck surgery training and as well as a research rotation. Now, here's where it's different, okay? And ENT beyond that can then go for specific board fellowships, okay? So, and they have to re-up them every so many years, all right? So um, like our dear friend, Dr. Garner, when I was at his office recording the last episode that we did together, uh, he was in the process of studying for and getting prepped to take his last sleep boards. And I guess they're good, I can't remember if he said they were good for eight years or 10 years, and it was his last iteration of doing them. And I was like, no, 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 no. We need to take this test twice more. <laughs> but like, <laughs> Fun fact, <laughs> he was taking it for one more iteration. I was like, I'm not okay. But but it's an ongoing, all right? But he explained after he finished up his residency, he then went and did advanced training for pediatric airway, which was, I think he said, like an additional two or three years of um, basically um, compare it to like us working on our BCSS, our board mm-hmm. certified specialty training and swallowing, all right? That's what that advanced training is okay all right so aaron rapid fire hit me what would tell you to get a kid to an ent um well my favorite is when you were like we walked into a patient's house and we left and you're like um babies should not have bags under their eyes if they have bags under their eyes that's a red flag so penis pulling or allergy allergic shiners sorry technical terms Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um also, if, I mean, a big one when they're infants is if you're hearing that strider when they're feeding, um, especially if, like, it's positional. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, there are friends for a lot of things. These are the specialists that you should be referring to if you think there's a tongue tie. This is the friend that you should call and get his opinion because, and I forgot to say this on our tongue tie episode, but like the tongue doesn't belong to us. Like it also belongs to them. So what we do with the tongue can impact their airway. And I would beg to go out on a limb and say, I'm going to go with airway goes above tongue. Yes, it does. Absolutely. It does. So I definitely like, and then it's, Also, and then it's not just on you. Like, we don't know what we don't know. So if you, if you think that's something that should be done, like, for my conscience, my conscience, I'm going to refer to the ENT as well, just to have them check it out. Um, And especially in PEDS, the ENT, like when I had my externship at the Children's Hospital, we did fees clinics. So they were the ones, and I know 
I'm not sure. I think it depends on where you are, but I think in a lot of children's hostels, the ENTs will be the ones scoping and you'll mm-hmm. read. It depends on laws and restrictions, but so we, or they have to be in the room. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of major facilities where the SLP can do the swallowing study with a scope. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ENT has to be in the room or in the building. Like, if, yeah. Yeah. If you have a kid who mom says, yeah, they have like when they eat spaghetti, it comes up out through their nose sometimes, or they've always had milk come out of their nose. Do they have or a vomit cleft or vomit come out of their nose? Um, BPI, velar pharyngeal insufficiency. Mm-hmm. If they're very, very um, nasally, like, hoarse. But they're very hoarse. Yes. Oh, yes. If their voice, like, you're, even if you're just like, mm, this doesn't, something seems off. If they're a cardiac kid and their voice is off, if they've had cardiac surgery, did we something happen with our vagus nerve? And um, the answer is yes, especially if they had cardiac surgery because there also could have been trauma during intubation. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So we did a cranial nerve episode a couple of months back. And if you have damage to your vagus nerve, um, or if you've had, um, it can, if you have a change in vocal fold or voice quality, it can be indicative of damage in your cardiac patients, deterioration of their heart status. Uh, I mean, there's, it's, if you have a cardiac patient whose voice goes on the fritz and they're of geriatric age, good for the goose, good for the ganders. It's also indicative of pediatric concerns. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's some other ones. There's like a million other ones, but I'm trying um, to think. Signs and symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea. We have night sweats, um, irritable behavior, ADD, ADHD. Um, I'm, I'm basically describing Theodore here. Um, if you can hear them snoring down the oh, hallway. Oh, snoring, yes. Snoring is a big one. Um, halitosis, um, open mouth posture at rest, open mouth posture at play, fronting of the tongue, um, fronting and speech sounds, TD for substitution for K and G. They may not have whopping big tonsils and a um, uh, lateral view, but they could be large enough that when they, um, from an AP perspective, that when they lay down at night, it blocks the airway um, in that perspective. <clears throat> but that that's right. All of these. And so here's the deal. Um, a doctor, an ENT cannot tell you if the child has laryngomalacia or trachomalacia, just by listening to them, they can say, Hey, I hear the signs and symptoms, but the same thing as a swallow study. You have to run the scope in, in order to see it. Okay. All right. So their tests, they have the laryngoscope, laryngoscope, and they have the bronchioscope. Those are their two biggies. There's more, but for the sake of time, those are the two biggies. Yeah. And we're not There's- going into all the things they do with the ears because this is dysphagia, but you know. yeah. Yes, exactly. Although squirrel chronic ear infections, um, it could, act, yeah, it could be GERD at night. Like they could be laying down at night and it backing up. Okay. But um, one thing about the laryngoscope, when that child is sitting up in their office and they run that flexible scope in through their nose and the child is sitting upright in the mom's lap and they say, oh yeah, we see some mild laryngomalacia. You do not have that kid at baseline during sleep. You do not have that kid at baseline mm-hmm. when they're in a side laying position attached at breast, swallowing, okay? Because the anatomy shifts and falls with gravity. 
So what may look like mild laryngomalacia when they're sitting upright screaming at the top of their lungs because they have a scope sticking through their nose peering in, that is not indicative of what it looks like every single night. Okay. Um, with a rigid bronchioscope, they actually go in through the mouth, but they pull the jaw anteriorly forward. So it's the best way to describe it. They don't unhinge it like a snake eating an egg, which is like super gross, but that's the way it always kind of comes to my mind. Oh, but okay. they pull it up out of the way. But like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, sorry. I try not to think about snakes at any point in time, um, but it's we, fine. We were on a hike for Mother's Day weekend over at Timberman Trail, and Christian was like, make sure you guys stay on the sandy part. That way, um, like, we don't have to worry about snakes. And then Bear and Goose were telling me all about, like, the Wild Kratts episode. And I'm like, well, thank you, us kids, for educating the kids. But, like, there it is. But, okay, but, like, the jaw moves like that. And when the jaw moves like that for the rigid bronchioscope, it actually changes where everything lays at rest. And the children are sedated for that procedure. But like, so again, you're still not getting what it actually looks like. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really difficult to understand the severity and the implications. Um, Also, which is why they'll do like sleep studies or SWAT. I mean, I know our ENTs up here are really great and they'll do sleep studies. And then they also have gotten into doing swallow studies before and then three months after a supraglottoplasty. Which is the procedure to fix laryngomalacia, trachomalacia. Yes. 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 But that gives you that gives you a new baseline. Mm-hmm. So um, so those are some of the signs and symptoms that would get us to an ENT. We talked about their two big tests. Um, okay. Um, so what does an ENT do for us? An ENT is going to clean up your airway. Because if you can't breathe, you're not going to want to eat. Often, children that have compromised airways will have a very shallow, short, latch because mm-hmm. they're trying to push the nipples forward so that a way they can have maximal room for breathing okay uh these are your kids that um will be your muncher biters because they're bringing their tongue anteriorly so that they can masticate with their front teeth as opposed to with their actual molars but that's because they're trying to breathe. They also tend to be like your vertical chewers. Like they don't do a good solid rotary chew. They're stuck in like a vertical chew or a munch because they're just trying to breathe around. Yeah. Or they have like that. These are the kids that their tongue is pushed out the roof of their mouth when we try and put the bottle in and you, you, not us people will um, just kind of shove the bottle in their mouth. And then Mm -hmm. they have like, (laughs) you get like the really heavy breathing when you take Mm -hmm. the bottle out. Um, yeah. And these are the kids like you all, not only mainly their airway is most important, but also if you can't breathe when you eat, why are you going to want to eat when you have control at when your suck no longer becomes a reflex and it's now voluntary and you can decide, oh, you know what? This doesn't feel good. I don't want to suck anymore. And then parents are like, why is my kid not eating at six months? And you're like, well, yes. here we go. Yep. Yes. Um. Okay, laryngeal clefts, they're your folks that are going to fix your laryngeal clefts too. They're the ones that are going to diagnose it. So if you got that kid that for whatever reason just can't seem to get it together with thin liquids, high Mm -hmm. fast liquids, y'all get them to an ENT. Let them run that rigid bronchoscope in because you're probably going to find a level one, level two cleft in there or something like that. But it's that's 
that's what they bring because you get those procedures fixed and addressed there. They feel safe. They feel healthy. They're at a point of healing. And then you can go and do really amazing therapy and teach them how to progress and move forward. So yes. Okay. All right. Hey, we got so excited and passionate about GI and poop. We ran out of time for the other one. It's okay. okay. We'll, we'll, it might, it might be a little longer. It's okay. Okay. Oh, okay. I know. See, look, I, I find my stride and now we're over. All right. Next on the list, neurology. Okay. So why, oh, why, oh, why did I add neurology here? Because oh, holy cat, we have got to have um, neurology involved. Okay. So neurology training, academic background. I promise I'm pulling it up. Here it goes. Pediatric neurologist typically has four years of med school, one to two years of general residency in pediatrics, followed by an additional three years of residency in pediatric neurology. Some of that, they do make them dip into a little bit of adult, but most of that's peds. Um, and then some pediatric neurologists choose to pursue an additional fellowship after all of that of one to two years focusing on advanced areas such as epilepsy, genetics, or neuromuscular disorders. Uh, they have certification from the American Board of Pediatrics, American Board of Psychology, Psychiatry, and Neurology. They're in school for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Please, please note that a pediatric neurosurgeon goes to school even longer. Okay. So you get them to a pediatric neurologist in case they have an incidental finding or a finding of merit and need surgery. The pediatric neurologist is then going to work with the pediatric neurosurgeon. Okay. Those are two very, very different things. Mm -hmm. All right. So why is the speech pathologist going to refer a kid for neurology? A lot of things. This is also like you've taught me a lot about this, but neurology is difficult to bring up when you are the first person who's noticed something. When you say that word, it can, I've had a hard time bringing it up, especially when I was in my CF. Like I had this little boy who was very asymmetric like he only really used one side of his body to crawl and and he wasn't even he wasn't crawling it was more like a scoot he like wouldn't crawl he would just scoot and he was he was that same way what like oral motor wise and that was a very hard sell I don't know if they ever got to neuro Um, But that was a big red flag for me because as you and I have talked about, a lot of these like grade one, grade two strokes can go um, unnoticed. Even I remember like in the NICU, they would do um, MRIs, but they wouldn't. I mean, nothing is foolproof or guaranteed, but I think... And, you know, if you see a kid who's kind of has a lot of moments of kind of staring away, um, keep an eye on that because they could be having absent seizures. Mm-hmm. And neurologists are also the people like a lot of times if a kid has a not a big, bad, ugly, but if a kid has a neurologic diagnosis, um, they're the people that we're going to communicate with 
to understand like prognosis or what's going on because they know a lot more about the neurology behind it. Um, like I had, I remember I had a patient that I didn't get any medical records and I knew it was, it was, I mean, we knew it wasn't a good, a great prognosis. Um, but I didn't know to what extent and it took a very long time to get talk to the pediatrician to talk to the neurologist but like basically we were working on a brain stem but I needed to communicate with the neurologist to understand that so that was really important and I think these neurologists have so much schooling but like we need to know there's so much to know so like not all neurologists are equal in far as what we need or what our patients need. And that's okay. So I think that's another thing to be aware of. Just like we're not all, I mean, you know, we like, like Michelle talks about, like maybe like that higher level language, like I I may not be the best one to treat that all the time, but that's it. But that doesn't mean. I'm not going to do literacy. Oh my God. I don't know how I'm doing literacy with my own children. (laughs) My own flesh and blood. Thank you, COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. But you have to find, your families are going to have to find the right, some need hand-holding and some need facts to be thrown at them. And in neurology, in different folks have different strengths. Mm-hmm. If um, you're noticing, like, um, they gravitate only towards, like, like, white, black, and red, or, like, you're noticing that... Cortical vision impairment. That's what yeah. it's like for TV. Mm-hmm. Extreme lethargy or drooling. Um, apraxia of speech signs and symptoms. I'm, I do not believe there is such a thing as childhood apraxia of speech. I think it is always an acquired or a neurogenic apraxia of speech. And I think this because I've had enough kids get to the right neurologist to run the CT or to run the rapid MRI or to run a full MRI and find whatever the it was, whether it be absence of tissues, um, malformed tissues, but those, those are my, yeah, no, headaches, sorry, headaches. Yes. Um, a lot of irritability. I mean, the kids yes. that like just out of nowhere seem to get really irritable and cry and because our kids can't communicate that their brain hurts. And so mm-hmm. that can happen a lot. And and neurologists are so important because a lot of these kids, their meds change a lot. Um, they, because their weight changes a lot. Their weight changes or they can't be on a met, this medication for a, sign, a certain period of time or these side effects significantly increase. But I also think like just as, you know, you, Michelle, you um, talk about this a lot, like Ever, you're always entitled to a second opinion. And I'm not saying don't trust the physicians, but you know, there have been times where I've had a family come back and say, well, they say that um, seizures can't cause cortical vision impairments and they don't cause any brain damage. And like I do some of my own research and like Boston Children says third leading cause of CVI is seizures and so it's just very hard for me to to not suggest you know get 
meandering over to, to a second opinion at some point. Like, I'm not saying <laughs> I'm a neurologist, but like sometimes you like sometimes you're like, okay, you know, maybe we should. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. Uh huh. But that's very hard to do, as especially as a new clinician. Like, I can sit there. You know, it's it's not. But once you, you get an answer from the doctor, it's very hard to go, push against that. But also, when it comes to your patients, like, you know, you gotta you gotta push sometimes. Yes. Because we've also, you know, they may have, you know, we because of us dealing with feeding and dysphagia like we in our as you talk about your evidence-based triangle like you may have seen more kids with a specific diagnosis than they have you may have not but like you can kind of advocate advocate for that based on what you've seen and then help build their evidence-based triangle not that you know but like you know but when you get so many outliers when you and you know you're going to have the kid on your case that's an outlier one of my Okay, so we, we're going to ask for seven minutes extension time tonight. Coach. We're, we're going to ask for seven minutes of grace. Okay, so one of my outliers was this sweet little boy who wasn't big as his minute. And his mama was a tall drink of water, just like his daddy. And um, this little guy came to me because he had chronic um, um, constipation. And he was a quote-unquote behavioral picky eater. Mm-hmm. So we went through all the things and, um, I mean, he would get up and run, but he was, his gait was off. He was like three and change. His gait was just a little, he was the kid that would fall a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is saying something coming from, my, from me with the boys. But I mean, he, he's just, he reminded me of a turtle. Like he'd get down, but he'd have to like rock side to side to get back up. And I had my sweet friend Paul come out and Paul came out and did his eval. And he was like, he's got just a little bit of difficulty crossing midline. Um, and mentioned something to mom off the cuff about, um, we were joking around with little boys messing with their tallywhackers and boy moms in the room, you know, like when they're little and you're changing their diapers, sometimes they get like a little, you know, too excited. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's, they're not doing that. It's just, they're, it's a physical neurologic response. The mom goes, wait, you're telling me that they get hard when they're little. And I was like, wait, you're telling me you've never seen that. And she goes, never. And I was like, we have a problem. What else? I'm Take me back. Take me back to the pregnancy really quick. Walk me through. At week 20, the child had had an ultrasound. They were concerned for spina bifida, but they, um, the subsequent ultrasounds said everything was fine, right? However, he did have a slight um, rash at the base of his spine. Not a rash, but like a slight discoloration and a tiny little sacral dimple. Not a big one, just a little one, right? And long story short, they got the kid to a neurologist. Neurologist did an MRI of head, neck, and spine. That baby had spina bifida occluda. It was an internal form of spina bifida. They had to go see a neurosurgeon, and inside of two weeks, he had spinal surgery. And guess whose constipation cleaned up Uh over Christmas break? And the rest is history. But that was because of the neurologist. Y'all, that fundamentally changed who I was because of a neurology consult. And I've had a couple other kids with spina bifida that had severe spina bifida that needed a different opinion on GI because, you know, if you're not innervated below T4, you might have difficulty pooping. But, you know, casual. Okay. Um, let me hit the test because we've got four minutes. Um, uh, some of the tests that a pediatric neurologist recommends 
CT scans, head, neck, and spine, and EEG. With an EEG, you're specifically looking for seizure-like activity. Or, I mean, is it differential diagnosis? Is it seizures? What type of seizures? Oh, Epilepsy Foundation. Oh, I love their website. It's epilepsyawareness.org. Y'all, their website is amazing. It goes through and explains every single seizure type um, and what to look for. Um, a spinal tap, a lumbar puncture. Mm -hmm. uh, with that, you're probably looking for ruling out meningitis. I've had several friends whose little ones um, have contracted meningitis um, from across the continental United States, um, resulting in uh, field of vision changes, severe and profound intellectual disabilities, uh, uh, hearing loss, um, all from a kiss when they were too little to fight it off otherwise. Uh, MRIs. Okay, so the last one, which we're not going to do justice, and a certain um, Crystal is going to beat me with a wet spaghetti noodle, <laughs> is an occupational therapist. Our John, who John, should be John. our best friend. Yes, if you are not referring to an OT, and I'm just going to say this because it really <laughs> bothers me. If you think that an OT just does either what a speech therapist does or what a physical therapist does, you are very wrong and should check yourself a little bit. <laughs> or if you want to get stabbed in the eye by an OT because y'all, they're fine. Ask if they work on handwriting only. Ask if they work on handwriting or stringing beads and watch them kill you slowly. And I'll be like, oof, you were warned. You Okay. We've said this before, but in different countries, OTs run pediatric feeding and swallowing, not the SLPs. If you go to Canada, OTs are on point. If you go to Austria, which is where one of the primary feeding tube dependency clinics in the world is based out of, it's OTs running point with, you know, GI and pediatricians, but not the SLP. Why? Because they're the gatekeepers to regulation. If you have a child who is unregulated, if you have a child that you are trying to get them to walk in the door and sit down and try a new food that's outside of their comfort zone and they're ping-ponging all over the place, they are, like me, trying to avoid um, recording tonight out of fear, um, bolting and going all over the place or ducking under the table or being twitchy and jumpy. Those are all red flags that they're dysregulated, sensory seeking, sensory avoiding. I know enough to scratch the surface, but this is not my specialty. But y'all, this is what an occupational therapist does. Okay, so training and academic background. Um, mo most states now require a master's degree in occupational therapy. Uh, a lot you of doctors have different, right? Um, uh, no, it's moving to a doctoral. It's going to be a DOT, like a DPT, but most states. It's just the master's in occupational therapy. Um, physical therapists moved to the DPT first. OTs are now rolling it in. Uh, but we still have some that have a bachelor's degree in OT, but they're OTR'd, like mm -hmm. OT registered. And the OT association is set up more similar to ASHA than the PT association, but it's still slightly different. Um, also, in case you didn't know that, go look at the requirements. Like, we have to be members of ASHA in order to hold our Cs, but, like, physical therapists don't have to be members of mm -hmm. um, the 
um, whatever their professional association is, which is kind of interesting, but um, also we have more stringent guidelines on CEUs than some of the others. And I appreciate the stringent guidelines on pursuing CEUs and the amount that we have to. All right. So we're going to go over by like an additional two minutes tech. <laughs> okay. We're going to put a disclaimer out about this one. This is a long one. Okay. But um, yeah, but they are moving towards a, a doctorate in occupational therapy. And I think they'll end up being, what it, what, it, what was it? Like a um, four plus two plus one. So like a seven year program. Yeah. Um or like six and a half. Yeah. Okay. So, which is far cry than a coda, which most codas only get a six week practicum certified occupational therapy assistant. They mostly get a six week practicum in um pediatrics during their two year degree. So if you have a medically complex fragile child and they're getting serviced by an assistant, you may want to advocate for yeah. the licensed professional. I am aware that there are unique circumstances where CODAs and PTAs are stellar and amazing, but um, advocacy. Okay. All right. So what tasks do they run? Um, the first test that comes to mind is um, the sensory profile index. That to me is the big one. It's standardized score that they go through and it helps to define two the family caregiver, if the child is a seeker and avoider, what kind of input? What are they seeking? What are they avoiding? Whether it be auditory, um, vestibular, um, uh, olfactory, like all the different parameters. But with that information, an occupational therapist can create a uh, sensory diet, which is all about bringing that child to the point of regulation. And and they have the ability to help get that child in the correct adaptive equipment, mm -hmm. the correct equipment to align them for posture, and help them learn hand-to-mouth for PO intake. Help them learn Which how to feed is themselves. very important. Yes, it is. Oh my gosh, I have one little one who has learned to feed himself after almost two years of therapy, but he cannot scrape the bottom of the bowl and he still switches hands because his hand is tired. And he'll tell me, Shell, I'm tired. All done. <laughs> and I'm like, Bobby, pick that spoon up. You are not all done. But like, and we've tried co-treating with occupational therapists, but like she was drawing a blank too because we're both kind of drawing a blank. I'm like, how do we like scrape the bottom of the bowl? But like, so if you have a trick for scraping the bottom of the bowl, we're all ears. But really truthfully like this this is when it's done right and we collaborate with this profession right this is the one where i feel like this brings the most functionality to their world and it's beautiful mm -hmm. yeah okay so that was not sufficient for occupational therapists. Please tell Crystal I love her. <laughs> um, Since we've run out of time, what if people want to learn more? How can they reach you and how can they read more? Okay. So first one up um, is our Facebook account. Um, heart, not heartwood. <laughs> that's my business, um, where I treat patients. Um, it's first bite, the first bite Facebook page. Uh, we also, which looks amazing. Thank you, Annalisa. Um, the other one is, 
um, our Instagram account. Um, our Instagram account is at First Bite Podcast, and we would uh, <laughs> we would love it. We love hearing from y'all, and um, we love the encouraging words, the questions, and the pictures that y'all shared. And Miss Annalisa, who does her social media, um, she has started a new story on the First Bite Instagram account called "How Do You First Bite." So take a picture of us. Um, or take a picture of yourself listening to the podcast and tag us in your stories and um, because we thought that would be fun to kind of do a little vignette together. Um, but check us out on the Instagram account, on the Facebook page. Also, um, the information on the book will be on my website, uh, heartwoodspeechtherapy.com. And when it's up and published, it'll be on Amazon. Um, but that's where it is. Um, um, I have to tell you all thank you um, from the bottom of my heart. Erin, um, thank you, everybody. This has been a journey. We have made it to 100 episodes. Holy cats. So um, to you, to Chad, our producer, who puts up with all of our last-minute edits <laughs> and procrastinations um, to Darla, the owner of speechtherapypd.com, who is herself a speech pathologist, who um, who has been a huge mentor to me all these years and encouraged me so very much. I am so grateful for each and every one of you. So um, thank y'all. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.